Hey everyone, welcome to Taking the Pulse, a healthcare podcast. I am Heather Hoops Matthews here in the studio with Matthew Roberts, Nexon Pruitt healthcare attorney. Good to see you. And we have two guests joining us in person, which is great to be in person, from Carolina Blood and Cancer Care Associates, CEO Dr. Keshet Patel and Director of Research Dr. Sashi Nadu. We are going to have a great conversation about a unique healthcare or unique system of care. Uh, incorporating a holistic approach when you've been diagnosed with cancer because their medical practice promotes both physical and emotional well-being with patients diagnosed with cancer. So I look forward to hearing more about this because we hear about cancer so much these days. So Dr. Patel, if you don't mind getting us started and just telling us a little bit about the history of your practice and the patient demographics that you serve. Thank you, Heather, and thank you, Matthew, for allowing us to join today to share what we do every day for a living. And on my way up here, one of the gentlemen asked me, who are you? I said, I'm an oncologist. He said, oh, my God, you got a tough job. And, and I paused and I said, no, I, I see this as my own liberation every day because looking at human beings coming to us with diagnosis of cancer is tough for them anyway. And instead of making it tougher on them, what we try to, we try to look at them as a human being first. The traditional approach has been to look into the tumor as a kind of, you know, your target. And we look at that human being with an abnormal piece of tissue. So that allows me to look at person with, who's a husband, wife, child, son, something like that. So I can relate to their woos, I can become part of their ecosystem and allow every resource that we have that would help address not only their tumor, but also their life as a whole. So from the time that we started building up our practice, we took what we call a true patient-centered approach. And instead of checking box, we looked into the building. So if you've been to our office, we have a healing garden, a healing dome. We actually encourage our employees to feed the plants so that they have a sense of belonging. We don't wear wristwatch, we don't have a clocks in the office, we don't keep computers in the office so that we can look at eye to eye with the patient. Our tables are at lower level than patients chair because we want them to feel that they are always in control. So two things we noticed was treating patient as a human being and not treating tumor. And second is allowing them to be in control all throughout the time is what the best way to approach the cancer as a disease. And what did we gain? Of course, you know, I, I, I have no regrets of having lived every single second of my life. Second thing is in 20 years, we've not had a single malpractice lawsuit or a complaint against anybody in the practice, in spite of having 25,000 plus patients. So that's how we look at, you know, how we should be delivering cancer care. And I'll hand it over to Dr. Naidu now to share his experience here. Yeah, I mean, just to complete your question, Heather, I think we are, our practice started in 2004. Uh, I, I joined about a year later. Uh, we have uh, two sites. Uh, we have a suburban site in Rock Hill and a semi-rural site in Lancaster. And, uh, uh, you know, we draw patient populations from five counties. And that's how we've grown through in the last 20 or so years. And I remember from reading uh, Dr. Patel, one of your books years ago, that you didn't wear a watch. And so no watches, so you're completely focused on the patient. It's just not the way of the world. Yeah, we typically take out clocks in the, room, in the patient rooms. Uh, we purposely 
position our doctor chairs to be, for patients to be between us and the door, so they know that we're not uh, all, we're not one foot out the door uh, every couple of minutes like other doctors' offices could be. So patients know when they come to see us that there are we may be running a little late, like all doctors do, but when we're with them, they're the only ones that matter. That's so nice to hear. It really Patient. is. So we, we know your practice is a little different. We know it's patient-centric, but you employ a, a holistic approach to treating your patients. And um, it's very interesting for me to hear about it, but tell the, our, our podcast viewers, what are some of the benefits of the holistic approach and how do you go about uh, impl imp implementing that when you see your patients? Sure. So uh, first of all, you know, Matthew, I, I certified in the holistic medicine to, in, to ensure that I'm following the the true scientific approach. There's a whole board called American Board of Integrative Medicine, and we trained in that. Me and Dr. Gore went and took training at Duke for integrative medicine as well. So the holistic approach involves incorporating every possible avenue that you have at disposal. Medicine is a part of that. So we, we build our foundation on a chemotherapy, immunotherapy, radiotherapy, targeted medicine. But then there is an anxiety component, there's a family component, there's a home situation, there is, a, going back to your question about our patient demographics, transportation issue. So what is holistic approach? Holistic approach is, I use word, I mean, letter W in front of holistic. Holistic, look at the whole patient. Put our shoes in patient shoes and imagine what would they be wanting. They need to be respected. They need their desires to be respected. They need their cultural values to be impacted. They need <clears throat> their personal sensitivity to be respected. And when we look at all of these factors, it, it makes us feel that we need to incorporate, for example, diet. You look into you know, lifestyle modification. I, I'm also trained in helping people do some mindfulness, so treat, teaching patients breath awareness meditation technique. And all of this help patients so much that, again, for me, when patient comes back and says, Dr. Patel, I'm glad you helped me look after my grandchild because otherwise I would not have been able to have a sense of fulfillment of my life. That is what matters to me apart from trying to do everything possible to cure them. So holistic approach is incorporating every integrative modality that is available at our disposal to ensure that we can help patients. For example, pain medicine. Pain is a big problem and just writing the pill is not sufficient to understand where the pain is coming from, what else could be done to help the pain. And all of these modalities help us to provide a sense of belonging, a sense of fulfillment, and a sense of living life to the fullest. And this is how we approach the holistic uh, kind of care. And Sashi, you can add? Yeah, I think it also adds, use, utilizing all these aspects that Dr. Patel mentioned, it increases, it just fosters more trust in, in our practice, in, in all the providers that we have, that we have taken an interest in these aspects of patients' lives that otherwise a doctor doesn't necessarily have to do, and it allows them to be uh, it allows them to be more open with us, more honest. Uh, obviously, with the types of treatments that we employ in our office, 
we have a lot of patients who have, can have side effects, bad side effects. So we need openness, honesty from patients, and that's what uh, this type of approach allows, allows them to do. And I just want to add one more thing, sort to interject, Heather, here, but there's an evidence emerging now. In 2021, I read about three or four papers which showed that undue stress on cancer patients can lead to worse outcome by adding mutations that didn't exist before. As simple as working in the night shift brings new mutations in the cancer cells that makes them resistant to treatment. And the last thing I want to add is there's a scientist in California, Alisa Apple, she got a Nobel Prize for showing in her work <clears throat> that meditation and mindfulness increases telomeres concentration and telomeres are something that are part of our chromosomes that help crack the defect in dividing cells. So there is a scientific evidence emerging at molecular level that applying the holistic modality, particularly the mind-body connection, does help not only in calming the anxiety, in soothing the anxiety, but also in improving the genomic map that in our own body. Wow. Dr. Naidu, if I can follow up on something that you said, you mentioned that you in this practice, you go extra steps that the average doctor may not have to do. Why choose this style of practice over a traditional style? Um, number one, it I think it, it's a more f personally fulfilling way to practice. It's the kind of uh, type of practice that I think uh, most of us as medical students, when we think of when we want to become doctors, this is the type of thing that we want to do besides just writing prescriptions and ordering tests and that kind of thing. But when it, especially in our field, we feel that if we could succeed in fulfilling these aspects of patients' lives from, on, from a day-to-day -day basis, um, we, we feel that the outcomes are better. Patients will have better outcomes. There's better compliance with therapy because... Um, the types of treatments, as you know, that we do go, go over many, many months, and we need patients to stay on track and stay on target and, and stay committed to the path in spite of their personal ups and downs. And anything we can do to smooth out that process, it helps the ultimate patient outcome. Uh, your practice has been involved in a CMS pilot project, you know, the oncology care model and you've gotten some accolades for that. Can you tell us a little bit about your practice's participation in the, the CMS model and what lessons you think can be learned from this, this model and where we're going because it's evolving? So the oncology care model was one of the icon of the alternate payment model that CMMR was looking into succeeding. <clears throat> and in true sense, we feel that it has given us a blueprint of what true patient-centered care is. Yes, we did our own way to provide patients and care, but the, the architecture of the program implementation came from CMMI. And we looked into what can we do to succeed in true uh, oncology care models. So providing expanded access to care, for example, we partnered with local urgent care to have patients go to them from 5 p.m. to 11 p.m. instead of coming, going to the ER. We opened our doors, we kept two slots open every single day to accommodate walk-in patients. We, on the weekends, we would come and bring patients in for giving infusions and transmissions. So the, one of the biggest success we had was 
reducing the number of ER visits and the hospitalization, what most of the physicians as well as healthcare systems forget is that number one cause of preventable both the quality of life issues and the cost is a hospitalization that could be addressed by providing care as and when the patients need. So any given quarter over last four and a half years that we've been part of the oncology care model, we've reduced hospitalization from 20 to 30 percent and that resulted in savings of millions of dollars and we got something back from the CMMI. And now uh, we are actually regarded as one of the most iconic practice in, in the oncological model. I had a call with CMMI on past Monday to give them some suggestions on the iteration of the future oncology care model that could weave in even the disparity piece. So the oncology care model has endorsed our patient-centered approach, has rewarded us economically, but also morally and spiritually because we feel that what we did has been recognized. And, and about three years back, uh, one of the top team from CMMI came to our office to validate the uh, success of OCM so that they could fund the program further on. And I think I'll pass on to Dr. Naidu because he's involved in day-to-day operation of the OCM and then how he kind of did some of the process improvement in the practice. Yeah, I think, you know, just from uh, going back to the holistic uh, ideal, I mean, it came, the OCM, the Oncology Care Model, came out in 2016. And it was coincidentally around that time that we were shifting to and really codifying the holistic aspects of our practice. And we felt the reason we were so enthusiastic about it is that we saw that it was really in the spirit of what we were doing anyway. Uh, part of our success, uh, I, I think a great factor in our success in the model was the fact that these are th- what they were asking us to do in the model were things that we were doing anyway. Uh, we didn't have to do a lot of, there was not a huge, uh, there was not a big philosophical change in the type of practice we had to do. Uh, there's just little things that we had to do to codify certain aspects of the care that we already type, we, de- uh, we delivered. So it was very easy for us. I mean, it, 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 we had no problem uh, with the buy-in for such a program from at the physician level, nursing level, or medical uh, office staff level. So what was really rewarding to us as physicians and leaders of our practice was the amount, the complete buy-in from every member of our staff into this model. And that's what we're most proud of. And Heather, this model stemmed from CMS's attempts to, to seek input about innovation way that mm. the care can be changed and they learned a lot from this south carolina these south carolina providers so it, it's really i think not only does it bestow a lot of recognition on you and your practice but the state for mm-hmm. for what they did it's so interesting to me i feel like i'm drinking from the higher fire hose because this is new this is new you know i don't i don't i don't see or hear a lot of this so I, i'm excited about it but dr patel if I'll stay on script here. You currently serve as president of the Community Oncology Alliance. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Um, what do you see as the greatest opportunities and challenges for patient-centered care um, based on what you've seen and gained from your colleagues? So the biggest opportunity I see as the president of the Community Oncology Alliance is an opportunity of bringing resources so that practices can remain independent. We all are aware of the 
ill effect of the consolidation, vertical integration, horizontal integration. Back in 2005, 85 to 90 percent oncologists were independent, and then came the big wave of consolidation mergers, particularly uh, followed with 340B uh, institution expansion. So what it did was provided almost like, for lack of better words, perverse incentive to institutions to uh, buy the practices, and the terminal impact was on patient because as an institution buys practice, the cost of care goes up. And I can share, for example, if my practice is sold to practice up to the hospital A or B, <clears throat> then the fee schedule will change based on the fee schedule that is uh, privilege of the institution. And patients' out-of-pocket costs would go up. So when you look into 19% of the Medicare beneficiaries do not have secondary insurance. So when you look into the fee schedule going up by 300%, that patient will have to pay 300% high out-of-pocket cost. Similarly, 76 million Americans who have commercial insurance have out-of-pocket cost that varies from 23% to 40%. And that amount could be from $1,500 to about $8,000 a year. When that, again, when, when the patient's access to small independent practice that works on the basic fee schedule is shifted over to the institution-based fee schedule, the cost of care goes up. So what I see opportunity from my role as a president is to do everything possible to reduce merger and acquisition or even to reverse some of that. And uh, what I see as a challenge is the increasing role of the PBMs. I, I hate to bring PBMs in equation, but the pharmacy benefit managers that come in between an oncologist and a patient, uh, I, I don't know what kind of value do they provide, but to the system it can cost anywhere between 30 to $60 billion a year, and we don't know what the values are. They go into big black holes. So the challenges are the consolidation, the 340B, and the PBM, that could become detrimental for the access to care. At the end of the day, I want to be able to provide access to care to those who need it most. Dr. Patel, we know that um, pharma and, and pharmacy uh, changes in our drug development are helping cancer patients, so we know that. However, describe a little bit about Big Pharma's role in the treatment of, of oncology and specifically how PBMs can be a block between the patient and the physician. Thank you very much. So uh, the, as an oncologist, I, I would say that, you know, half of the drugs are going into the oral space now. Half of all cancer drugs are becoming targeted therapies, which reduces the side effects, increases life expectancy. But if I want to start my patient on, say, a specific cancer drug today, either the PBMs will mandate that I shift it to somebody else. And when I shift it to somebody else, even though I have the drug in my uh, repository, I can give it to patient today, but they'll say, well, send it to this mail-in pharmacy. Now, mail-in pharmacy will end up in sending 90-day supply. What happens is 64% of the patients do not end up in continuing the same dose because of side effects. So we trash 90-day supply because patient had side effects, that could be worth $80,000, and who pays for it? Us. So the first of all, access to drugs as and when patient need 
is not available there second is the patient assistant so in my practice i pay two and a half times full-time employees just to find out foundations and i i don't get rewarded with that but i, I have employees who from this morning start looking at the out-of-pocket cost for the patient to help the patient to help the, the patient right. to reduce out-of-pocket costs that's not the case with the pbm so if a patient was directed to the mail-in or the pharmacy, then patient will have to pay all the out-of-pocket costs because there is no human soul at the end. There is just a machine that says we are going to send your medicines to your patient. And the third thing is, you know, side effects monitoring. I am the one who is used to using this cancer medicine most. And I can look after that patient most about the early warning side, early warning uh, side effects all of anything else. If I'm not in control of monitoring that patient, it's hard for me to do that. So PBMs are definitely coming in between us and patients. Now, pharma, <coughs> as much as we all, I mean, I tell my pharma partners that you need to rein in the cost. But in my experience, I've not had a single patient who, if they were uninsured, they went without treatment. Pharma was always, always, always there to help. I'm not sure if PBMs do their role in that space. And the patients have no idea or control about PBMs. Patients have no control. They don't even know who's going to send their medicine. So patients have, end of the day, patients don't access know who to medicine. Or, or when. When, yeah. right. Yeah. So end of the day, it's the access to care is compromised by insertion of PBM between doctors and patients. Yeah. That's something the average patient like myself doesn't think about. Well, when you get a cancer diagnosis, which is you know potentially life-altering, life-threatening, you want to be able to have a relationship with your physician and understand every aspect of your treatment. Mm -hmm. And this is a part that is outside of how the treatment interacts with the patient and with the physician. So, Your practice has been um, influential in supporting and maybe starting a charity called No One Left Alone, or NOLA. Would you explain what that is, the area of focus, and your hopes for it? Sure, Heather. So before I jump into that, I want to give a little bit of background of why we decided to do that. So with COVID-19, what we came to realize that everyone was different and biologically people were being impacted in a different way compared to mainstream Caucasians. And along with came the congressionally mandated report uh, on the disparities in the cancer health called American Association of Cancer Research Disparity Report, which showed that 34%, one in three deaths is preventable if we took care of the disparities. Not only just human toll, but financially, our country would have spent $230 billion less between 2003 and 2006 indirect cost and about uh, one trillion less in the indirect cost. So I lost my sleep, started reading about it, studying about it, spent almost thousand hours uh, learning about it and found that there were four simple things needed to be done. Improve access to screening, cancer screening, improve access to molecular testing, improve access to care by providing the economic help to those who are underinsured, uninsured, or Medicare only, and uh, improved access to clinical trials. And I first knocked so many doors at national level. I have a national imprint and footprint in DC. 
And I realized that it's all going to come back to local solutions. And so I got together with my team and we decided to take it on our shoulders. And we started a pilot along with my congressman's office in district number five, where we put in two and a half employees just to look at financial resources to help patients who need financial care. We started clinical trials. We started doing these studies. Uh, two big national studies are starting at my own clinic and will be recruiting multiple sites in different areas with the ultimate aim of building up a ladder of the care that addresses disparities to its best. And my aim is that if we can just show that we touch a 200 lives in one year, multiply that by 400 congressional districts, we could touch 80,000 lives at national level. So the idea is that establish a pilot demonstration project at local level and show that it's doable and feasible. Mm. That's a very important project and we look forward to supporting it. Um, we'll end with this question, which um, is not as, as depressing as it sounds, but uh, and this is for both of you. What, what do you tell your patients and what advice do you give them when they get a cancer diagnosis, uh, which can be you know, extremely upsetting? But I, I've heard you talk about this and it's, it's a, somewhat inspirational to me at least. So what do you tell the patients when you've got to deliver this sobering news? So I'll start with that. So I, I tell my patient that, you know, uh, your body tissue has started malfunctioning, but it's part of who you are. And our role is, first of all, to help minimize that burden. Second is to help if you can get, get rid of that. Third, if you can do that, if you can establish peaceful symbiosis into your body, by ensuring that we look after the quality of life and we ensure that we take every possible avenue to help through this. And if I can't do that, you know, at the end of the day, we all are mortal creatures. We all are going to leave this world, but I want to make you stay on this planet as long as possible, full of quality, addressing all of your needs, and then uh, leave it to his almighty to do wherever you're heading after that. And, and for me personally, what drives me is that I'm born to serve as a human being to the fellow human beings. And uh, I do this all because when I go back to my creator, when I go back to whatever form I believe in, I'll have an answer to say that I played my role as a human being. And, and most of the time, this is very liberating to my patients. They feel that we are there with them throughout the journey. And Dr. Naidu. Yeah, you know, far too often patients come to us with advanced stage cancer. I mean, there's times, of course, that we find early stage cancer, and that's a great thing. But what I tell especially my patients with advanced cancer is, you know, as of today in 2021, we, you, there is so much more hope and optimism in your, in your journey, even at an advanced stage, than there was even five, 10 years ago. Uh, you know, we do uh, appreciate our pharma partners who uh, diligently look at all the various um, drug therapies and latest advances. And I, I tell patients that, you know, what in, in your situation, what may have been just a one-year survival 15 years ago could be a five to seven-year survival now. And, and we tell them that it's a process, that every in years past, we may have had a few drugs that have been beneficial and come out maybe two or two or three times, uh, two or three drugs, excuse me, in a year. 
now we may have 10 that may be applicable. So the, there is a lot of optimism even with such a dire diagnosis. And that's, and that's the most important thing that we can provide as, as uh, oncologists when patients first come to see us, a sense of hope and a uh, sense that we're there in, uh, on the journey with them. And I'll take the last word. So the last sentence I use is I'll become part of your microecosystem. I'll look at you as a human being, not a piece of tissue. And everything I can do to help you fulfill your life as a human being will do. And that helps most. What a great way to end this conversation, doctors Patel and Naidu. Thank you so much. It's uh, been informative and uplifting and inspiring altogether. Um, you're doing a very good work. On behalf of Matthew, everyone at Nexon Pruitt NP Strategy, thank you so much for joining us. And for those of you who listen today, I hope you are also informed, inspired, and encouraged. And we look forward to seeing you next time right here on Taking the Pulse. <laughs>